by Passion Church, the DeSoto County campus, the fun church in Horn Lake, Mississippi. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church. I just had to laugh about it, you know, it's just life. You just gotta learn to laugh at stuff sometimes. But I wasn't no prize back when I was young, neither. <laughs> I don't know. I don't get no respect. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, we used to play wiffle ball. You ever play wiffle ball? We didn't play regular wiffle ball. We was two young boys from Mississippi. We would take that wiffle ball, and we'd get electrical tape. We'd wrap it up till it was harder than the baseball. <laughs> we didn't play with no little cheesy you know, plastic bat. We had aluminum bats. And we threw the ball so hard that we wore helmets, you know, a real batting helmet. My brother, he was six years younger, bless his heart. It was hard for me to get him to play after a certain length of time because I would throw that ball about 90 miles an hour from 30 feet away, you know. <laughs> and when, it, when the curveball didn't break, he took the brunt of it. But, but anyway, I would eventually talk him into playing again, and, and we kind of loved it because I was always the Los Angeles Dodgers, and he was always, uh, who was he? He was the Houston Astros, and we had our, our uh, rosters up on the backstop. Our backstop was my grandfather's old uh, pump house. We had a strike zone painted on it and everything. We had a real home plate, and we had a mound that we had built <laughs> in this Bermuda grass out there. <clears throat> and... Uh, we would, we would play, and, you know, each batter would get a turn. When it was his turn to get up, we would call his name out, and I would do the commentating. Coming to bat, you know, Ron Say. <sighs> and I would do the crowd noises, and everything. Heath would just get so mad because my crowd noises was always in favor of the Dodgers, you know. And, the, you know, the, uh, what was it called, the Astros, they'd get up, and I'm a boo. You know? <laughs> hey, we're playing at Dodger Stadium, you know. But it was funny because he was six years younger, and, and I would uh, try to make things even, you know, because I wanted a little competition. I would only take one out an inning. He would get a whole three outs an inning. And I would start off with, like, Fernando Venezuela. You remember him, the, the curveball pitcher the Dodgers had? And so I wouldn't throw hard. You know, I'd just break them big curveballs off. And that boy could hit now for his age. He was the best hitter, I, natural hitter I ever saw. But, you know, somewhere along the line, especially if he got ahead of me, there was always that last inning rule where I got three outs, the last inning. And, and uh, <laughs> he didn't like that. He would take off running. I'd have to drag him back. <laughs> and there was always that time in the game where things was getting close, and I knew that we had to bring in big guy Sheffield from the, <laughs> from the what do you call it, where the pitcher's the bullpen. Big guy Sheffield would come out to a, <sighs> you know, the crowd going crazy. And I'd get up on the mound, and Heath would start to saunter off. I'd you get back over there, boy. <laughs> he, he knew what was coming. It was going to be my fastball. No more curveballs. It was everything I had. You know, I was 16. He was, what, 10 or something. And, uh, of course, I'd close the game out, and he wouldn't, wouldn't be able to hit one of them. What do y'all think about big guy Sheffield? <laughs> Is that the kind of guy you can root for? No, probably not. Anyway, while I say this story, 
We'll tell you later. I can tell you're very impressed with Big Guy Sheffield. Uh, let's recap last week. Last week we talked about Daniel. We're in a series on Daniel. Tonight's message is called Stopping the Mouth of Lions. We have finally gotten to the lions then, y'all. <laughs> After six chapters in Daniel, we finally get to the, to the lions den that everybody always talks about. Last week, Belshazzar was the king, and it was the last day of the kingdom of the Babylonians, the Babylonian Empire, because... He was an idiot, pretty much, and he was drinking out of God's gold cups he shouldn't drink out of and everything. And if you remember, there was a fingers wrote handwriting on the wall, so, so to speak. The handwriting was on the wall that your kingdom is coming to an end, and it did that very day. Does anybody remember what, kingdom, what kings came in and took over who had been waiting outside the gates? The Persians and the Medes, yes, the, the Mede-Persian Empire. And uh, they installed a new king in Babylon, Babylon named uh, King Darius. And so we start in uh, Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces, and he appointed a high officer to rule over <coughs> excuse me, each province. So he's showing some leadership wisdom there. You know, the other king probably just, I'll rule everything, I'll do everything, because he's you know, thought he had to be involved in everything, probably micromanaged. But this guy says, hey, let's break it up. Let's get some other leaders involved. I like it. I like it. Verse 2, the king also chose Daniel and two other administrators to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interest. So he had a good eye for talent because we know Daniel had already rose up to the highest ranks of leadership two times before. And he was just an exile there. He wasn't even, you know, one of the guys that came from there originally. But this king, Darius... He spotted him and uh, recognized talent and put him in, in his top three there. Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. How many are starting to like this Darius? He, does, he seems like he's got a little more sense than Belshazzar or King Nebo. Then the other administrators and high officials began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs, but they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. So they concluded, our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. Just tell him how much you love him. We thank you, Father, that you help us soar on wings as eagles and walk and not faint. We'll run and not grow weary. We thank you that when we spill our hamburgers, we can laugh about it. Father God, one day that piece of cheese, it'll fall off my mirror. We thank you, Father, that you take care of us. You look after us, you laugh with us, and I, I dare to say you probably laugh at us a lot of times, but it's in a good fatherly way, and we know that uh, if you laugh at us, we need to be laughed at. We love you, Lord. We love you. We're here because we love you. We love each other because you loved us. It's all because of your love. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So, Daniel 
as we know, has great character and, and he has an impeccable witness for his God. It says they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn Daniel. They were looking for something. His co-workers, his peers, they were like, man, this Daniel's rising up to the top again. Let's get him out of there, man. Get him out of the way. I want to be the boss. You may work with some people like that today. I don't know. No ifs, ands, or buts. Say buts. When people look at you, how many buts do they see? You know what I mean? Daniel is an impeccable witness. Some of us have some impeccable traits, but she's a good woman, but she's so lazy she got a different pair of sweatpants for every day of the week. She's a good woman, but she says, housework probably won't kill me, but why take a chance? <laughs> Why clean the house? It'll just need cleaning again in a few months. Before y'all go accusing me of being something, I don't want to put any thoughts in your head. Let me get on to the men. <laughs> but seriously, he's a good man, but if somebody looked at you and they said, you're a good person, you got a good heart, would there be a but in the way? He's got this little drinking problem. He's a good man, but he's got an anger issue. He's a good man, but he can get violence. He's a good man, but he's lazy. He won't work. He's a good man, but he talks bad about everyone. You fill in the blank. He's a, she's a good woman, but <clears throat> our buts are clouding our witness for the Lord. What did he say? I must have missed it. She, she's a good woman, but she drives me crazy. You see, Daniel cared about his reputation for God. He cared about his own reputation because he knew it reflected God. And as Christ ambassadors, we're supposed to represent, right? That's what an ambassador does. He comes and he represents uh, a king from a different country. When the world sees our butts sticking out, they blame Jesus. Are you getting what I'm saying? They call us hypocrites. They, they use that as an excuse why they, they don't go to church. Like, that's not hypocritical. <laughs> Jesus told us in Matthew 5, 16, he says, Let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. See, we need to, we need to have a track record of good deeds. We need to have a track record of shining out, to be in a city on a hill, to be in a light in a dark world. So they'll see your good deeds, and then they'll praise your heavenly Father. See how that works? Like, a, like the sun reflecting off the moon. We're the moon. We don't have any light of ourselves, but the, the, the light of the sun reflects off the moon onto the earth and gives us light at night so that we can see in this dark world in which we live. Paul agreed in Philippians 2.13. He says, for God is working in you. 
given you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. So where, are, are any of you just inherently good? And you haven't noticed a difference since you got saved. I was good before I was saved. <laughs> or do you feel God's power in you? You know there's a difference. You, man, when I was lost, I was lost. It was all about me. Big guy Sheffield coming out of the bullpen. Everybody must go, <sighs> right? But now God is working in me, giving me the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Before it was all about pleasing me. You okay? <laughs> Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Oh, my goodness. I wish he wouldn't have put that in there. Because even after I got saved, <laughs> I worked at Power & Tail for eight t or 16 years after I got saved. And if you ask anybody at Power & Tail, do you think Guy Sheffield should be a pastor? They would be like, he had his moments. <laughs> Probably, you know, because I was always arguing and complaining. Why? Because I, I, I had a lot to work out. Nobody is going to have this perfect witness overnight, but you should be working towards one. And so, man, I was stuck in this four-by-four four cubicle, and, I, man, it was, it was tearing me up. I'm like this racehorse ready to go, ready to create something, ready to do something, and I'm stuck in a box. It's like, you know, we had a Labrador one time, and we tried to keep it in a kennel. Boy, you let that thing out. And that's the way I felt. I felt trapped. And, I, man, I let everybody know it. And I knew I was supposed to be having a Christian witness. I knew people knew me that I had recently got born again. But it was hard. It was hard. I had to fight. But towards the end, when I finally started getting it, when I finally got content with whatever state I was in, even in that four-by-four four cubicle, when I finally came to grips with, if this is where God wants me, I'll be happy here. When it finally came to him, when I finally stopped complaining and arguing, then that's when God changed my circumstance. It was a testing grounds. It was a battlefield. Maybe you're going through a battle right now. But I would say, keep on moving forward. Keep on getting, getting up. Don't grow weary in well-doing. You know what I mean. Do everything without complaining and arguing. That just gets on God's nerves. He's not a complainer. And he ain't, he ain't one for arguing. He's going to win whatever the argument is. Right? That's what got them knuckleheads in trouble in the wilderness for 40 years. Complaining every day. Wanting to go back to the old lifestyle and so forth. So that no one can criticize you. Live clean and innocent lives as children of God. Shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. See, we're supposed to stand out. Stand out. You are the light of the world. You are the, you're the one that's supposed to be different. You know that. And our butts can also damage other Christians, especially the more immature Christians. Paul says in Romans 14, 12, to decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. See, many of us, we, we understand, we've read the Bible and we begin to 
enjoy our freedom that we have in Christ. You know, we're not so rigid as we once were. We thought Christianity was rules and regulations. We begin to realize it was a relationship, and we begin to come out of ourselves and enjoy our Christianity a little bit. And then some of our brothers who are newer in the faith or sisters, uh, they come along behind, and they're still thinking this, you know, real rigid, that you can't have fun as a Christian. or So, you know, whatever they think, and they, they haven't enjoyed the fullness of the freedom, but Jesus is setting them free. But some of the things that you do may cause them to stumble. Do you know what I'm talking about? And sometimes the things that we do ain't right in the first place. And now you're going to cause another brother or sister to stumble because you're trying to live outside the, what's right in God's eyes? <clears throat> Angie get, told me, uh, mentioned to me her testimony the other day. She said when she was first born again, we, we started living for the Lord about the same time there when we started coming to this church. And, and you know, we were, at the time, we were partying it up. We were drinking, and, and uh, I was playing in the nightclubs every weekend and so forth. And so we hadn't come out of everything yet. We were brand-new baby Christians. We didn't even know we were supposed to come out of everything yet. But Angie said she knew that she was not supposed to keep drinking. And you might want, you want to get up here and tell it. You'll just correct me when I'm wrong. She knew she wasn't supposed to be drinking, but she still wanted to drink. And so she would drink, but she would drink secretly so that no one else would see. Because something in her heart told her, this, this, this ain't what a Christian's supposed to do. Even as a baby Christian, she understood, you know, Somebody else shouldn't see me. This might ruin somebody else. You know, this might cause somebody else to stumble. She knew that much, but she, she was like having a, a hard time dealing with it, and she was about to deal with the issue, and she said her, her friend called her to go out to eat, and it was, she lived way out in, like, in Germantown. And so Angie went all the way out to Germantown to eat with her, and they were this restaurant in the middle of Germantown, and our church was way down here. And so she's thinking, I wonder if it'd be okay to drink here. Surely I won't see anybody <laughs> that I know here, and so they were having these two-for-one specials. You buy one beer, you get two beers. And so she says, I'll give it a try. And so they ordered, and they, they brought two beers and sat it in front of Angie and two beers and sat it in front of her friend, and no, longer had they, no, no sooner than they had set them down, some youth from our church comes walking up and says, Hey, Miss Angie, <laughs> out in Germantown, true story. True story. Now, how did you feel? She felt sick. And, and he never even acknowledged that you had the beer, right? He just said hello and walked on. But you knew that he saw that, right? And you knew, being an impressionable youth, he may walk away thinking, well, if Miss Angie's drinking, an adult that goes to our church, it's okay for me to drink. You didn't know if he might have been prone to be an alcoholic. You know, a lot of people struggle with drinking and so forth. So what he's saying is live in such a way that you don't cause others to stumble. And whatever it may be. 
In 1 Corinthians 8, 13, it says, So if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble, one that Jesus died for. He's talking about eat uh, meat that was, uh, had been sacrificed to idols, you know. And he talks about, you know, that, that ain't no big deal to a Christian as long as you're not, you know, eating it and sacrificing to idols, you know. But some of the other believers believed that it was wrong either way. And so he, he said, even though I have the liberty and it, I didn't feel like it was sin, I'm not going to do it so, so it doesn't make it look like I'm sinning and cause another brother to sin. Daniel, it says, was faithful, always responsible, and he was completely trustworthy. That's a good testimony. And I want you to note that they weren't judging him on how he acted at church. <laughs> they were judging on him by his behavior at a government job. <laughs> if you can act good at a government job, <laughs> if you can, <laughs> you know, if you're working an MLG and W, and let us, does this sound like an MLG and W worker? Faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy at a government job. <laughs> What would they say of you? What, what would those P&T workers say of me at my time there, complaining and arguing all the time? What is your witness worth to you is the question I'm trying to get to tonight. I think it's really the point of tonight's message. And, I got, you know, I'm so used to the word witness that I just threw it out there, but then I got to thinking about it. What does witness mean? And this just came to me, a visual testimony of your life. When somebody sees your life, can they see Jesus at work? It's a visual testimony of the way you're living. That is your witness. When they see you, they witness what Jesus is doing in your life. And what price would you give up your witness? You remember I told that story about uh, I had to dream, and I was on that little train. This story keeps coming up, but it's the third time in this series. But I was on that train, and they stopped for a minute, and we got off, and we was resting and stretching our legs, and somebody put down a card table and started dealing cards, and I was like, I knew that was wrong. I said, it's no, no time to be gambling, but they dealt me a good hand. I looked at it, and I started justifying, right? Well, it wouldn't hurt me if I just threw these cards down and won real quick. You know, at what point do you begin to justify your way out of your good witness? You know, I asked Chad a couple weeks ago. I said, Chad, would you miss church for $1,000? He said, you better believe it. I said, would you miss church for $2? He said, what kind of Christian do you think I am? I said, we've already established that. Now we're just haggling over the price. <laughs> Chad, you know that didn't happen. I, I just threw your name in there. Chad, you know, he, he would gladly miss church for nothing. You know? <laughs> oh. Couldn't be no worse than you's already thinking. You know? Anyway, let's get back to the story. I digress. 
Daniel's got these jealous co-workers. They want to bring him down. They want to destroy him. And they can't think of anything. There's, there's no behavior. There's, he's, he's been perfect. They can't f- find anything to pick him apart. So they begin to think, maybe something to do with his religion. That'll be the way we can get him because we, we know he's consistent there. And, if we can, and so they go to King Darius and they play on the poor man's pride. I thought he was a good king until this point. But we all have this human pride. The natural man that doesn't know Jesus is going to have pride. And we're going to battle pride once we get saved. And so if they go to King Darius and say, Oh, King Darius, you're so wonderful. You're the best thing. You're like God on the earth. Really, there's no reason for anybody to worship anybody else but you. Why don't we just make it a declaration? Why don't we just say King Darius is God of all the universe and for the next 30 days, if anybody to worship anybody else but King Darius, we'll just throw him in the lines then. Here, sign right here. King Darius, you know, he probably knew better, but he said, yeah, I am kind of great. <laughs> yeah, I do like to hear that noise when I walk out. And so King Darius, against his better judgment, signs it as a proclamation for the next 30 days. If anybody worships anything, any person, any animal, they'll be thrown in the lion's den. He succumbs to human pride. You know Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goeth before destruction. Haughtiness before a fall. Haughtiness is, sounds like the same thing as pride to me. Either way, when you see somebody in pride, just wait a minute. They fixing to fall. If you see somebody lifted up, thinking that they're more than they should be. The natural man is always plagued by pride. The king wanted to do good, but, say but. Human pride. Pride is a snake that will always come back to bite you. Am I telling the truth? It is the hallmark of the devil. It's what got him kicked out of heaven. He came down here. He's, it's the same thing he uh, threw on Adam and Eve, got them kicked out of the garden. It's the same thing probably led you to the bottom of the barrel, along with the rest of us. So we finally looked up and saw Jesus. It's a snake. How did, how did the devil come in the garden? They called him a snake. And I told you the, the, the joke about the little girl that saw the snake, and the snake's like, pick me up, and help me down the mountain. And he'll, no, you'll bite me. He says, no, I won't bite you, I promise. Just I just need to get down so I can find some food. Help me down the mountain. So she picks up the snake and puts it in her, in her jo- jacket, and when she gets there, he bites her. She said, how could you? He said, you knew I was a snake when you picked me up. And you know human pride is a snake. It's going to be your downfall. So, humble yourselves, lest you be humbled. (laughs) I always tell God, help me to humble myself. I don't need you to do it, God, but help me to humble myself. Because I've been humbled by God, and I'd rather just do it myself. I'd rather look at my life. I'd rather examine my history (laughs) like I often do and see what a knucklehead I've been outside of Christ. 
and go ahead and get a real estimation of who I am without Jesus. Keep yourself humble before the Lord. Because I'm telling you, when big guy Sheffield comes out, it's pride unhinged, boy. <laughs> He's going to be throwing 90 miles an hour, probably at your head. That's the kind of pride that makes you a legend in your own mind. But when, when everybody else... <laughs> thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. But when everybody else looks at you, they see something different than you see. When you think you're all that, they're not seeing the same thing you are, I can guarantee you. And God's certainly not seeing it. He's not going to share his glory with any man. He's not. If you're going to be prideful, if you're going to be lifted up, you are disqualifying yourself from the things of God. You either be a witness for him or for your own overinflated ego. Verse 10 of our text, Daniel 6. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home, he knelt down, as usual, in his upstairs room, and its windows opened towards Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he always had done, giving thanks to God. And he didn't do it in a prideful way. I want to do it anyway to spite them. No, this is just who he was. This is just what Daniel did. He gave thanks to God every day. Now, you may say, well, Pastor, are you saying we can break the law? This is a new law. Can we break laws, Pastor? Yes. But. Say but. <laughs> this is finally a but that we can get behind. We're subject to a... <laughs> we're subject to a higher law. A higher power. We are subject to the laws of the land. God makes that clear. He, he's given authority, and the laws are good, you know, supposed to be for good, and uh, we're supposed to obey the law. But in those certain situations where the law contradicts a higher law, which is God's law, what are you going to do? You go by God's law. Uh, we have a case of this when Peter was told not to witness in Jesus' name anymore in Acts 5.27. But Peter and the apostles reply, we must obey God rather than any human authority. But that doesn't mean you won't suffer for it. He got beat for doing so. But he just left praising God and giving thanks that he was wor counted worthy to, to suffer for Christ's sake. That's the heart of a Christian that you would be counted worthy to suffer for Christ's sake. And we know later Peter was crucified like his Lord, but not feeling like he was worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord, he asked to be crucified upside down. That is the heart of a Christian. In verse 13, Then they told the king, that man Daniel, one of the captives from Judah, he's ignoring you and your law. He still prays to God three times a day. Tattletale, tattletale. Hearing this, the king was deeply troubled, and he tried to think of a way to save Daniel. He's coming back to his senses after his pride momentarily got a hold of him. He spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of this predicament. In the evening, the men went together to the king and said, Your majesty, you know that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, 
No law that the king signs can be changed. So they're just making sure the king knows. So at last the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. The king said to him, May your God, whom you serve so faithfully, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed the stone with his own royal seal and the seals of his nobles so that no one could rescue Daniel. Then the king returned to his palace, and he spent the night fasting. He refused his usual entertainment, and he couldn't sleep at all that night. Couldn't sleep at all that night. You know I had to say that, didn't you? You knew that was coming. Very early the next morning, the king got up and he hurried out to the lion's den. When he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God, whom you serve so faithfully, able to rescue you from the lions? Probably not expecting an answer to that one. But Daniel answered, long live the king. (laughs) My God has sent his angel to shut the lion's mouth so that they would not hurt me, for I have been found innocent in his sight. And I have not wronged you, your majesty. God knows how to deliver the innocent out of the destruction. He knows how to deliver. And he will deliver. But what would have happened if Daniel wasn't so innocent? What if Daniel had been complaining and arguing? What if Daniel wasn't operating humbly before his God? (laughs) He might have been the lion's supper. Is that what you said? Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. But God knows how to deliver those who are walking in the shadow of the Almighty. And that's what I'm trying to get to you guys lately. We're living in a time we need to be walking close with God. This is not a time to be on the edge trying to see how much you can get away with. It's time to be how close can I get to God? How much can I hear? How humble can I get? How obedient Peter helps us understand in 1 Peter 2.19, if you want to turn there. For God is pleased when conscious of his will you patiently endure unjust treatment. What he's saying there is, if you get punished for doing wrong and you endure it, that's okay, that's a good thing. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you're beat for doing wrong, you know, that you're just getting what you deserve. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. For God called you to do good even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example and you must follow in his steps. So, when they told Peter not to witness in Christ's name anymore. He did it anyway. But he knew he was going to suffer for it. But he patiently endured it. He did it anyway. He did what was right no matter what it cost him. Of course, Jesus never sinned. He was in our example. John eight forty six says, Which of you can truthfully accuse me of sin? Nobody could accuse Jesus of sin. He went around doing good. Healing all that were sick pressed of the devil, driving out evil spirits. In 1 Peter 2.21, Peter says, For God called you to do good. 
Just like Jesus, God calls us to do good and to suffer for his name's sake, if so be it. Are you prepared to do any suffering? Some of us think it's suffering to be here on Wednesday night. Some of us think, you know, I don't know what some of us think. Well, tell the other ones. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering. We don't like to talk about suffering in the church. We, we don't do much of it in the American church. But there may be a day just not too far around the corner, it may cost you a little something to say you're a Christian, to, to wear that Jesus t-shirt or have that fish on your bumper sticker. Your witness may cost you something in the days ahead. Are you willing to still do good? He is your example. You must follow in his footsteps. He never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. See, he knew that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. What good is it going to do to complain and argue when they're going to do it anyway? Just turn it over to God. Let him be the judge. Let him deliver you. I have found to the extent that you try to defend yourself is the, to the extent God will back off and let you. But if you turn it over to God, then you've got nothing to worry about because he judges fairly. Unless, of course, judging fairly ain't in your favor. <laughs> he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and to live for what is right. By his wounds you are healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to the shepherd, the guardian of your souls. That's what, who needs to guard our souls, our shepherd. The sheep should stay with the shepherd. Of course, though he did nothing wrong, he never sinned, neither was guile found in his mouth. What happened? They shamefully treated our Lord of glory hung him on a cross, mocked him, pulled his beard out, tried to shame him, put a purple robe on him, a crown of thorns, beat him unmercifully till he was unrecognizable as a man for doing good. Jesus says in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. So don't be surprised. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you're not no longer no you are no longer part of the world. He says, I chose you to come out of the world. Maybe somebody in here thinks they chose Jesus. He chose you. He chose you to come out of the world. And so the world hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than his master. Since they persecuted me, naturally, they'll persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They will do all this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. So if they rejected Jesus, know that they will reject you. Not everybody, but some. Back to our text, verse 13. 
The king was overjoyed and ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. Not a scratch was found on him, for he had trusted in his God. Then the king gave orders to arrest the men who had maliciously accused Daniel. He had them thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and their children. And the lions leaped on them and tore them apart before they even hit the floor of the den. And see, that's what's going to happen to God's enemies in the end. Then King Darius sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I, I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed, and his rule will never end. He rescues and saves his people. He performs miraculous signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. God is the only one so magnificent. He could take a pagan king and have him give the most wondrous praise to God himself. Took a pagan king to say that our God is the true God, that he's forever, he's eternal, he's awesome. He has miraculous signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Our God is a wonderful God. He's a loving, merciful God. He's shown us the way. listening to the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it and that it inspires you to live out God's Word. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church.